start start over again. Sorry. to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. I'm Bree. And I'm Rachel. Today we get to wrap up another book club. I think this one is my favorite maybe so far. (laughs) This book was super duper fun to read and there were a couple people who didn't like it. So as always, I think we got both sides of the coin uh, as usual. Um, I now have a newfound love of travelogues. My my current book is also a travelogue because apparently these are books that I never knew existed that I also need in my life. So our book this time around was Travels with Charlie in Search of America by John Steinbeck. And I keep telling people about this book because of how super fun it is. So Rachel, as usual, take it away. Thank you, Sarah. Um, This one was, uh, this is, I think the third time I've read this book now. And I was so glad that I had the opportunity to read it in community with fellow Lutheran ladies. For those of you who do not know, Travels with Charlie in Search of America was a book written in 1962 by John Steinbeck, who you may remember from such great American novels as The Grapes of Wrath, Of Mice and Men, and those other books that people are required to read and usually hate in high school. (laughs) You know what? True story. I had never read any John Steinbeck before this. But I now have another one of his lined up for me to read. Nice. Because I so enjoyed this. I have also never read Steinbeck before, so I also need to read them. (laughs) I think I read The Pearl before Mm. this, which I did not enjoy. Mm. I'll be honest. But I was a very young person at the time, and my tastes had not yet become as fine as they are now. So... Mm. I need to go. I need to go back and reread some more Steinbeck. Wine at that time, <laughs> yes, <laughs> literally. John Steinbeck, who eventually won the Nobel Prize in Literature, had written the great American novels of the Depression and the years following. And by the time he got to be a middling to oldish man, was rich, famous, separated from the everyday common folks of the American reality that he had written about all those years ago and was feeling really uninspired and disconnected. And so he decided to get back out there, get to know America again, but he wanted to do it kind of anonymously because he's like, I'm John Steinbeck. They're all going to know me. (laughs) Spoiler, no one ever recognized him. (laughs) Nobody knows him. (laughs) It's like Tony Hawk traveling these days. If you ever Exactly. But to do this, he got himself a, what was at the time, a fairly nice camper on the back of a truck. And he and his dog, Charlie, got in and uh, drove it all the way around America. And so this book is a, an account of his journey and the people he met along the way and what he learned about America on the way. And it's really fascinating because this time in the 1960s was this a real transition point in America where we were going from, you know, the the last of the agricultural people were leaving the farms. We were going from the atomic age. There are people alive at the time who remembered horse-drawn buggies and no indoor plumbing or electricity or anything like that. And yet there are also, you know, planes crossing the Atlantic and 
television and all these things. So it was a real crucial time in America trying to figure out who we are in this uh, really first world reality. And I think Steinbeck does a really awesome job of trying to distill that tension, that American restlessness that I think um, is so prevalent even today. So that was a, that was good fun. But enough about me, Sarah, I know what you thought about it. Brie and Aaron, any initial thoughts before we dive into our actual book club discussion of the book? I would say this was a really fun audiobook for road trips, I think, fittingly enough. Oh, um, yeah. I, so I listened to this book actually back at the end of June. So I might, <laughs> disclaimer, I might be a little foggy on some parts <laughs> when we drove out to North Carolina for vacation. And it just was, it's just a fun little read. I think, you know, obviously there are some poignant sections of the book, but definitely don't like crack open of mice and men and expect it to be of that any sort of joyful caliber that that I read about in this book because it's a little some of his other stuff's a little darker I think yeah you're Um, right the one thing that I wanted to note because you all know me hashtag psycho dog mom like (laughs) I really loved Steinbeck's ability to like portray the idiosyncrasy of like dogs and like being a dog owner and the companionship that we share with dogs. And I just thought, you know, if you, if you are a dog person, you consider your dogs to be your children. Like if you're of that mode, I would, I would definitely give this book a read because it it was very, it was, it was very cute. And uh, I think just a, a, a good read and very relatable as a dog owner. (laughs) I love that Charlie was his own character and almost mm. human uh-huh. because of, and he like has conversations with him and it's just, it's and yet he does, he respects him as a dog all throughout, right. you know, like he doesn't treat him like a baby. It's like, no. I, you, I am a man, you are a dog and I totally dig that and respect you as a dog person. And the mutual regard that the two of them have for each other is just splendidly written. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Charlie wouldn't be a baby. He'd be he'd be like a middle aged man with one of those cute little hats and like tweed and suspenders. That's how. Yeah, it'd probably be like John Steinbeck. It would be like two yes. middle aged yeah. dudes on a road trip. <laughs> <laughs> Only question is, would he be smoking a cigar or a pipe? Mm. Pipe. pipe. <laughs> he, if he's French, though, wouldn't he have those like sick, like really thin cigarettes? Oh, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. true. He's French. Mm. <laughs> Sorry. These are the things yeah. I think about all the time. <laughs> yeah, I also really, I enjoyed it. I thought he had, and this is what made me decide I would, I would actually seek out another of his works to read, was he had just such an incredibly vivid way of describing both a physical place, a geographical location, and also the the people that he would interact mm-hmm. with. And I just they were painted so clearly in my mind and I, I really enjoyed that. And so that's why I decided that I would, I would give another one of his works a try. Now I might end up being like, well, it, maybe this will end up being my favorite of his works. Who knows? Um, (laughs) But I couldn't resist it because the, the language was just so beautiful and not like, 
yeah, it was just it was just masterfully done. Maybe that's the better that's the better term than beautiful because it wasn't necessarily just flowery and and overwrought or anything like that. It was just so clearly described mm-hmm. without going on and on <laughs> as I have just done <laughs> like that. <laughs> <laughs> but he is particularly good at at that, like at being yeah. descriptive of both people and place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have these images in your head the whole yes. time you're reading it because of the way he's able to describe things. Which, like, I feel like I went on the road trip with yes. him because I have these images of like memories of going with him just right. from reading the book. Yes, yeah, he is obviously a master at the height of his craft. So when he tells you things like, oh, I felt like I was losing my edge and I needed to. No, don't believe him. <laughs> you know what I did read, though, that was kind of interesting um, as I was crafting my answer for today's episode. Somebody like really went and like fact checked this book. Yeah. Are, are you aware? Like, does that happen with books? Uh, especially with memoirs. Yes, okay. it does. Uh, especially older memoirs. I mean, like, for example, you, this is a, a very famous example. You probably think that everything in a uh, little house on the, in the big woods, the Laura Ingalls Wilder little house books, that that's a factual memoir. <laughs> yes and no. Mm. You, you're bursting my bubble here. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, as it's Steinbeck, I love this quote from the book. It's based on, but not limited to facts. And <laughs> yeah well all i know is i so for my i'm spoiler alert i'm answering question number four but like you do a google search of travels with charlie social issues and like the top five hits on google is this bill stein wendell or who i'm not sure i'm getting his name right but like he had this big like anti-travels with charlie agenda and was like fact checking everything it's like it's not even like the cliff notes, like pay for this essay to turn in like 26 bucks, join this cliff notes membership thing. It was all like about this guy mm-hmm. kind of grinding an ax against travel. Yeah. And there's, I mean, well, anytime someone comes and writes a memoir that they play with their own memories, you know, mm-hmm. and we, it's certain people get very offended if there are, if it is not 100% factual, Steinbeck didn't set out to do a journalistic report. He set out to figure out the spirit of America. And he himself admits he didn't take really great notes all along the way. He was too right. busy living the trip, you know, to, to do that. And so you, you have a choice in reading any memoir like this. You can either say... It's not 100% factual, I'm mad, and throw the book across the room. Or you can say, it's not 100% factual, but he speaks a lot of truth here. Mm -hmm. I think I want to keep reading it because it's so enjoyable and it's given me so much to think about and ponder. And and that's sort of where I come with this book. Mm -hmm. I don't... He's a novelist. Give him him some slack. And if you want to see what I'm talking... Okay, so the dude's name is Bill Steigerwald. And he has the website truthaboutcharlie.com. Oh, wow. <laughs> humbug. And I think coming from a, a love of historical fiction anyway, where the stuff that you're reading in historical fiction novels, a lot of it, at least the stuff that I read, is based on true events and true things in history. But you know going into it that like 
the main character in the book is probably made up and not all of the things in the book probably happened. Having that mindset going into this, it's like, yes, it's a travelogue. Yes, obviously Mm -hmm. he went across the real United States, Mm -hmm. but he did make the trip. Right. Like he made the trip. The rest of it, I mean, uh, there's, as we'll talk about, there's a lot in here (laughs) that is very applicable to culture then and culture now. So, Mm -hmm. sorry, didn't mean to derail the train here. (laughs) I just sort of figured that he, yes, he, he, it was artistic liberty and he sort of merged, he would, he would merge five different people into Mm. one character that he then wrote about to, to communicate this concept of it so i wasn't put off by it not being a hundred percent history book right i feel like it's a memoir which implies there's there's liberty i mean memories are not reliable to (laughs) begin with it's a memoir so yeah did he write this after he came back from the whole trip do we know like how he actually wrote it yeah. No, he wrote it when he got home. Yeah, you try going on a three-month trip and then coming back <laughs> writing everything accurately. It just it doesn't happen. <laughs> and also, I'm going to call foul on uh, Bill Stagerwald, Bree, because <laughs> he may have fact-checked Steinbeck to death, but he also set out to recreate his journey and then wrote his own book called <laughs> Dogging Steinbeck. <laughs> so maybe he's got... An ulterior motive. I think you're right. <laughs> oh my goodness. I almost want to read it just to see. But I know, right? I may be going out on a limb here, but I'm going to guess that Bill Steigerwald maybe isn't quite as good a, good a writer as John Steinbeck. So, <laughs> reader beware. <laughs> How long? I had the impression that somehow this was a much longer this was only one this was only three months wasn't yeah. it yeah yeah well so I was slightly disappointed that he didn't actually go to all 50 states like going yes, in there, I, thought, I thought he was gonna go to every single every state and he state. like just made a big loop I was like what what about what about us <laughs> <laughs> sorry what Missouri sorry <laughs> Well, and by the time he got to Virginia, he was so sick of being on the road that he basically just went through at 70 miles an hour. I mean, <laughs> it's true. I th- yeah. <laughs> so it's not comprehensive. Although it's still, but he did actually complete the circuit, which is more yes. than I can say for a book like Bill Bryson's Walk in the Woods, where he set out to hike the whole Appalachian Trail and then like uh, cut out um, like when he got to Massachusetts or something, did not go all the way. And then just sort of hurriedly finished the book and said, sorry, uh, hope you enjoyed it. I did. I learned I, I learned what I set out to do. <laughs> I'm okay being America's donut hole because those are delicious. <laughs> so anyway, that's, uh, you know, Steinbeck did, to his credit, at least make the circuit. He didn't ditch Rosinante, the travel camper in Georgia, and fly home, which... Mm another author might well have done yeah i love that truck by the way and the right. name yeah the whole premise behind it is super there a cool picture of it that, yeah is there is, a photograph i'm sure you can find one if you search john steinbeck rosinante and the the truck yeah. was named for don quixote's horse yes exactly so don quixote the famous wannabe knight from from uh, miguel cervantes's early novel um there's totally pictures favorite sci-fi series features a spaceship named Rosinante. 
Oh, so now I know. I don't know if this is the real thing, but there is a model. It looks like it's a part of some exhibit. Yeah, I, I love how we're all googling thing. this right now, and none of us did this before. Yeah. <laughs> like, it only well, I did it before. I'm just redoing it now. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yes, there is a camper, and now yep. I want to go visit wherever it is. Hmm. That is tiny. Okay, so now on display at the National Steinbeck Center in Salinas, California. John Steinbeck Rosinante, and you will be just blown away by how cute this rig is. It's so cute. Super cool. I want to go see it. Yeah. Fantastic. (laughs) Okay, so we all liked the book, even in spite of its limited fealty to the actual facts of the trip. We all appreciate Steinbeck's writing. Let's dig into some of the uh, nitty gritty details. We had only six book club questions this time because I got under the weather and couldn't couldn't fill up the page quite as full as usual. But as we always do for these book club recap episodes, I would love it if each of you would pick one question that we can talk about in a little bit more depth here on the podcast. I think Aaron should go first. Hmm. <laughs> Same. So I wanted still sort of torn on which question I'm going to first, I am going to say that I, while I was reading this book, reread it on a road trip. I also read it while I was traveling and I actually traveled to Maine mm. while I was listening to it. Nice. And it was also an audiobook. And so I loved listening to it while I was in Maine. And I was like, while I was there, we had potatoes and I was like, did you know that Maine is a potato state? <laughs> <laughs> so I had a great time uh, lobbing out various facts that I had learned. Hilarious. <laughs> they were delicious potatoes as well, let me tell you. They was they were like almost like a Yukon gold, but they weren't gold. Mm. They were so tasty. Hmm. Um <laughs> one quote. This is sort of getting at question one, but I did want to share it. But one quote that just rang so true to me was when he was talking about autumn in New England mm. and he had spoken to this this native New Hampshire woman. He wondered if it sort of got old if you lived there all the time. And she said that the autumn never failed to amaze her to a late. It is a glory, she said, and can't be remembered so that it always comes as a surprise. And I loved that concept because as I think about it, indeed, that is how it feels. There mm-hmm. are certain visual places in the world where the beauty is so intense that your mind it can't hold on to it it Mm -hmm. can't it can't remember it and then when you go back again you're you're struck anew by just how shockingly Mm -hmm. beautiful it is your mind it can't be remembered Uh, and i thought that was very striking Mm -hmm. one piece that i didn't quite that i found myself resisting was when he talked about roots and hmm. the idea that Americans, they just don't like roots. And that's why <laughs> they keep moving. And it's the people in Europe who have roots. And that did not resonate to me, mainly because I think it's because I did move around so much as a kid and a young adult. And so I definitely recall 
thinking that I had reached a point where I was like, I want to, I want roots. I want to stay somewhere and I don't <laughs> want to keep moving and constantly starting over again. And I had that longing for roots and I don't know, maybe it, maybe it's one or the other. Maybe either you start out with roots and you long for them or you have them. And then you're like, I feel root bound and you want to dig up and move somewhere else. <laughs> But that was that was one piece that he said that didn't quite quite ring true for my experience. Well, it's it's interesting, and you're sort of getting we're we're uh, now talking about some of the things that were raised when we talked about question three, and that is, you know, how true is the book, and mm-hmm. how well does he fulfill his own mission of getting to know the spirit of America, mm-hmm. and that. That part that you mentioned did actually come up during our our book club discussion, and especially this quote where he says, could it be that Americans are a restless people, a mobile people, Mm -hmm. never satisfied with where they are as a matter of selection? The pioneers, the immigrants who peopled the continent were the restless ones in Europe. The steady rooted ones stayed home and are still there. And so, you know, he's pointing out, and I wonder if this is something, a part of the American spirit that changes as time goes on, but mm-hmm. with the ex- with a few exceptions, well, I mean, quite a few exceptions, you know, the, the Native American tribes, for example, and mm-hmm. all the Africans who were brought over against their free will, who definitely, you can't really judge <laughs> restlessness mm-hmm. based on that. But mm-hmm. for all the European immigrants, and more recently, the people who have come from Asia, from South and Central America, from you know, Africa within the last 50 years or so, all of those people were the ones who left, the ones who picked up and said, mm-hmm. what, I, I, I don't know what it'll be like there, but it's got to be better than here. And so there is a sort of restlessness at the heart of the American origin story. And yet you're right, all the people who came here, you, you see them sort of dividing down the middle mm-hmm. um, between the people who want to find a spot, put down roots and stay there. Mm-hmm. And the people who just keep on moving. But I think he ran into more of that latter crowd, partly because he was going across country in a really cool looking camp trailer. Mm -hmm. And anyone who saw him said, Ooh, can I, can I come? Right. That that sounds really fun. Let's go. You know? So I think maybe he got a slightly unbalanced view of the restlessness of American people. If I were traveling the country in a really nice travel trailer, I'm sure a lot of the people I stopped and talked to would be like, huh, well, I thought I was rooted, but looking at that, I kind of like to go. And I don't like, I don't know if anybody else had this reaction, but like I was, I was struck with little wanderlust bug after like reading the description and sort of hearing him talking about mobile living and how, you know, it's cost effective and, you know, there are, there are, uh, you know, downsides necessarily to putting down roots. And so as I'm listening to him, like, romanticize this whole mobile living and traveling from place to place and drinking whiskey out of plastic mugs, like, I'm just like, wow, <laughs> I really want that for myself, even though... Like five minutes into it, I'm going to be like, I really don't want this for myself. <laughs> yeah, at least one person. I'm, I'm looking here at a comment from one of our book club participants, Elizabeth Decker. She wrote, as I read the book, I kept thinking, wow, I want to do something like this. Now I just have to talk my hubby into getting an RV. 
<laughs> and I, I think that there were probably a lot of people who have read this book, but you're right. Even Steinbeck himself, after like three months of the road, he's like, I'm so done. I want to go home. I want to sleep in my own bed. I want to see my wife, you know? And so there's, even in Steinbeck's own life, we see this, this balance between the restlessness, I want to get up and go, and the rootedness, I just want to go home. Um, mm -hmm. They're both there. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I actually read this after, right after I'd gotten back from our last vacation trip of like going <laughs> three trips in six weeks or something crazy and the last one and then I read the book. And so I was having these flashbacks of like mm -hmm. all of our traveling and all the feels of like seeing all these magical places. But at the same time, I was also like, I am so glad I'm not traveling again. Like I love <laughs> places. I love seeing things. I love coming home and not going anywhere for it a was long time. It was kind of a stressful return for you, was it not? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Our travels have been, yeah. Anyway, mm. <laughs> but yes, I, I think maybe I'm, I err on the side, err? I fall on, I, I'm more on the side of, of somebody who likes having roots. I like, I like having a home base. I like going out places and seeing things and experiencing, mm -hmm. but I definitely like, I never want to move again. I like being where I am <laughs> and I'm good with that. I grew up in the same house for 22, 21 years of my life, mm -hmm. though. So I come from a very different background than you do, Aaron, because mm -hmm. I, you know, I had roots and my parents are still there in the same house. So, like, well, I said, and yet, like, even today, you see, you see these small, like, subcultural strands of people living out of, like, Airstreams and Volkswagen vans and school. Like, there's a whole, like, if you go on Instagram, and search for the hashtag schoolie life like people in life like they just yeah they do they take school buses they take old school buses and like outfit them for mobile living like that or even like shipping crate homes like mm -hmm. there's there are these these strands of subculture i think sort of weaving throughout that maybe he's right and there's always going to be at least some people who like they don't want to be tied down to anything yeah mm -hmm. yeah Yep. I would love to be tied down, but uh turns out that uh, I'm moving in three weeks and this will be, I think, approximately my 25th home in life. So oh, my goodness, yeah. I, you know, I'm just estimating at this point, but it's number 11 or 12 since I've been married and I had a migratory childhood. So I understand this tension, you know, at the same time, mm -hmm. I feel like I just want to go somewhere and live long enough to see an apple tree grow up. But then on the other hand, after two years, I'm like, the only time this place is going to be clean is when we move out. So that had been <laughs> <laughs> happened yeah. soon. Yes. <laughs> and that, too, is the American spirit. <laughs> indeed. Yeah. Indeed. The other part of the book that, again, struck, I don't know, it got me thinking, but so this was this was indeed one of the other questions. So I'm I'm claiming two questions, I guess. Um, was right. was the <laughs> the question on the topic of like the the definition of manliness yes. and <laughs> uh, and he had this like just very uh, I'm gonna have to just read it, but like this very violent definition of manliness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> this a man's man. <laughs> yes, the man's man who I've always, he says, I always, I've always lived violently, drunk hugely, eaten too much or not at all, slept around the clock or missed two nights of sleeping, worked too hard and too long in glory or slobbed for a time in utter laziness. This idea of this 
fierceness that is an essential quality of manhood. And to an, to an extent, I'm like, yes, I think that is a valid definition of, of manliness, but I don't think it's as comprehensive as he wants it to be. No. Because I also think about, like, I think about my grandfather, who was <laughs> this gentle man mm-hmm. who had six daughters Aww. and but still was very much he was a man he did not live violently <laughs> he like drank a whiskey slush like three times a year maybe <laughs> and there's not a lot of whiskey in this whiskey slush. more slush than whiskey um, exactly <laughs> he did not eat too much but he did eat uh he did actually sleep regularly he had a bit of a bit of a tendency to to nod off there unexpectedly regularly but definitely did not stay up around the clock and he worked hard but he also like spent a lot of time with his family and so he's in a way sort of like the exact opposite of much of what Steinbeck seems to be describing here mm-hmm. but I'm that's also a totally valid example of manhood and manliness. Mm-hmm. And I think right now in our society and our culture, we're really struggling with these these opposites. And it tends, it seems like we tend to say it's one is wrong mm-hmm. and the other is right. And that's that's the only way of it. And I think that's part of what has gotten us into such difficulties mm-hmm. in a whole lot of topics. Uh, the social issues that we struggle with right now is the idea that it has to be one way mm-hmm. and the other, if it's not that way, then it's, then it's abnormal and perverse and wrong. I don't know. So that, that's the other part that I, I think there is room for, for Steinbeck's definition here of manhood and that there is that, fierceness that some people have and keep their whole life or, or wish they had and, and miss it when it's gone. But there's a, there is, there's a whole spectrum of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is, it can, <laughs> it can all be manly. That was another part that I sort of, as I, as I read it, I resisted a bit of what he was selling. Yeah. Uh, I, um, I think historical context here really helps too in understanding you know, his question later on in the book of this used to be a nation of giants, where have they gone? When Mm. we talk about the transition that was happening in the post-industrial age in America, you know, think about it was not, it it was in recent memory that you had men digging the Erie Canal with shovels. Mm -hmm. You had lumberjacks who were cutting down trees with like trees that were, you know, the size of a house with hand axes and cross cut mm-hmm. saws you had people building railroads across the entire country with sledgehammers you know that this was the kind mm-hmm. of masculine strength on which you know america's modern foundation was built but at the time that steinbeck was writing that kind of strength had been replaced by automotion mm-hmm. automation it wasn't necessary anymore so he was having to wrestle with this idea of like well, I thought being a man meant being Paul Bunyan or John Henry, but those guys are unemployed right now. And so I'm going to need a different working definition here. Uh, I sure hope there are some heroes like that still available. So he's having some wistfulness for that bygone era mm-hmm. where masculine strength was really, truly valued 
and useful. And I think we are we also are still in that era where we're not sure what to do with this kind of fierceness, violence, physical manliness. But I like in our as soon as I put this question up about, you know, manliness, I want to thank Deborah Miller for chi- chiming in and saying, I think a man is someone strong in faith. Mm. Yep. The foundation in the word. And this is where the Christian worldview really helps us out that to be, as you describe your grandfather, Aaron, that the kind of strength he had was one built on love, service, self-sacrifice, faith. Mm-hmm. You know, these are the things that make a man. And, you know, Steinbeck, I think you're right. He did sort of struggle to figure out how to understand his own his own manliness. And with that, you know, I think his uh, wife's womanliness, which he really appreciated. And I appreciated that he really respected her Yeah, for that. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a, I think anytime you attempt to define masculinity or femininity outside of scripture, mm-hmm. you run into these kinds of, but what about so-and-so? You know, it's an incomplete definition if you look at it from any other angle than God's angle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have a. I feel like we have two different definitions of what that means, depending on whether you're looking through our Christian worldview or from a world point of view of how a secular society would view a man, because we we base our values on two different things. And so, if you're not, if you don't have those same values uh, at the base of uh, who you're trying to describe, what you're trying to describe, that identity you're trying to find, you're not, you're never going to end up in the same place. Mm-hmm. Because you're, I mean, you start off in, in vastly different corners. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mentioned in um, my response to that question, especially regarding his, uh, you know, struggling with his own manliness and, and appreciating his wife's femininity, uh, femininity, that, uh, that comparing those two doesn't have to be a zero sum game. And I think so right. often in our culture today, mm-hmm. um, especially because this is pre-sexual revolution yes, um, in the yes, 1970s. So we, we're reading this post all of those things that have happened yep. since then. So we have, a, we have a very different cultural lens through which we're, we're discussing this. Um, but so often nowadays we're like, well, men have to be one way, women have to be another way, we, but we try to balance them out in a way that, or we get really upset when we try to lift one group up um, and think mm-hmm. that 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 oppresses the other group when that isn't actually mm-hmm. the case. Lifting up uh, women and women's rights and whatever that means, and I won't even go there. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're putting down men. But right. that that goes the opposite way as well. That appreciating a man's manliness and what men uh, contribute to society doesn't mean that we're putting down women either. Right. And that's a right. that is a hard thing for our culture yeah. to mm-hmm. wrestle with. Because if somebody's winning, someone's got to be losing, right? Right, right. And that if if women are winning, men must be losing, or vice versa. And Mm -hmm. I think um, (laughs) I'm really thankful for Steph Schulte. She has such a a a way with with her words and and just this clarity of of thought. She asks this question that still sticks with me. She says, uh, "Speaking of marriage." Why can't we have two smart people who work together and complement each other's strengths and weaknesses? Wouldn't that be fun to watch? <laughs> Wouldn't it though? Wouldn't it? You know, and that is the kind of marriage that we actually see on display in this book 
We have mm-hmm. a man who's comfortable with his masculinity, a woman who's comfortable with her femininity, and they're just enjoying life together. I mean, they're not all together during, but they look forward to being together yeah. and yeah. celebrating their differences, but also their their commonalities. And I, I think that that I wasn't ex- going into this book. I didn't expect to see, uh, you know, an inspirational model for marriage. But there it is peeping through around the edges, you know, that this <laughs> is is there. So I'll, I'm thankful for it. Yep. All right. We got a couple other big questions to get to before we wrap this up. So who wants to let's, go next? Uh, let's keep this social issues train rolling, shall we? Let's do chugga chugga. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I picked question number four. Basically, what this question is talking about is Okay, Steinbeck obviously talks about different social issues that he experiences in his travels throughout the country, speculates about the problems of his day. Which of the social issues he comments on in the book feel especially familiar and relevant to us today, and have his observations and projections generally proven true over time? After finishing this book, and this is like strangely comforting in a way. I don't know why. I, I think it's kind of terrible that it's comforting. But like the the strongest example that I can think of in that book of social issues is, is the issue of race and school integration back in the late, what it would it have been, the late 50s. This was in 1960 that he took this trip. 1960. Around. Okay, so he so when he's driving through the South and he's in New Orleans and he actually experiences Ruby Bridges, who is the black girl who goes to is it William France Elementary? Maybe she's basically the first girl, black girl in the area to be integrated into a, an all white school, and so this was a this was a huge moment for the civil rights movement and seeing what Steinbeck saw with um, the cheerleaders who were these stout middle-aged women who like stood on a podium and screamed about integration and not only like not only being aggressive towards Ruby bridges, but like, I guess what I would call integration sympathizers because there was that additional story of a white boy being I believe uh, being escorted to his school as well. And so there was almost a stronger response to that, that there would be white people who are like embracing integration and like being fans of it and seeing merit to it. So I think today we still see an antagonism towards rights for for people of color. I think we do see that. I think we see antagonism towards non-POCs who want progress and and growth and peace. I don't really even need to go <laughs> go into all that. And frankly, I I don't even think that is the I don't think that's necessarily the point that I even want to dive into. I think what I want to dive into is not not experiencing the cheerleaders and Ruby Bridges being escorted to school. But what I want to talk about is the people that John Steinbeck, there were three people that John Steinbeck transports on his travels after New Orleans. And I think that it, I think it pretty well sums up sort of this reality that 
non-POCs, non-people of color who want to see progress for people of color and to see equal equality for people of color don't really know what they're doing. Like they want to help, but they don't, they don't know how to help. And it's still like, even for me as, as a white woman, like what do I do in this whole scenario of racial tension in the country? So the first person we see him pick up is an older black gentleman who I get the feeling that John Steinbeck feels like he's doing this guy a favor. And the guy that he, this, this older black gentleman, like is just almost like in fear of like, okay, I'm in this, this white stranger's car. What is he going to do to me? He's talking to me about all of these hot button issues that apply to black people, uprisings and integration. And like, what's he going to do with me in his car? Kind of, it's almost like, John Steinbeck is trying to help this guy, but the guy he's helping is almost misinterpreting his kindness and his goodwill as almost a threat. Um, And so the second person that we see get picked up by the author is just a flat out racist white dude who it gets to a point where John Steinbeck's like, he pulls over. He's like, get out of my car. You're disgusting. I can't, I can't deal with you. I that that moment in the book, I just about cracked up because when he when he was talking to John Steinbeck and um, he says, well, no child of mine is ever going to go to an integrated school. And Steinbeck <laughs> says, so you have children then? He goes, well, no, <laughs> no. But if I did, but if and I did, the third, the third person he picks up is a younger black gentleman who is a, he's a student. And probably he made it author made it sound like it was maybe like a college age student. Mm-hmm. And in his conversations with this guy, it almost feels like the author is taken aback because this person that he's picked up almost has a more militant approach to how to fix the racism issue. Because at one point they to, they do touch on like Martin Luther King the whole idea of civil disobedience and this young guy that he's transporting says it's not, it's not happening fast enough. Like we need to do more. We need to be better. We need to take more action. And so I think for me, that part really resonated with me because I think, yes, obviously we still have issues of racism in America, but I can sort of look to that section of the book and say, yeah, we still don't know it. We still don't know what we're doing. And it, <laughs> it gets kind of discouraging, but that's that was really what resonated with me in terms of social issues is, yes, we're aware there's an issue, but is there anything we can really do about it? Kind of a, an approach. It's a it's a slow thing. Yeah. It's, you know, a, a 300 million hearts and minds changed yep. in slow motion. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think it was just sort of a, a lucky thing for the country that John Steinbeck happened to be going on this trip at that moment and to have a bit of curiosity to see how the South was faring. And the the portrait he paints is kind of bleak, mm-hmm. but I think it's a helpful corrective when we think about the civil rights movement, because it's tempting to look back and say, it was bad and we fixed it. Mm-hmm. And I think the answer is it was bad and we started to fix it and we had no idea what we were doing and we still have lots of things that need fixing and we may still have no idea what we're doing but the important thing i think is to recognize the problem 
and to recognize the fellow dignity and humanity that we see all around us. I love that he contrasts his story in the South with his uh, childhood reminiscences about the the one Black family in his town, mm-hmm. Salinas, California, and how this family, basically they had three sons. The, the father was respected in town for a, a good worker and an able businessman. The wife was respected as a, as a wonderful homemaker. And the three sons went off and did great things because no one ever implied to them that they couldn't. Mm-hmm. And he said that if since these were the only Black people I knew, it never occurred to me to think that Black people were inferior in any mm-hmm. way. He said, you know, the question that was often asked in the 60s about that was remains sort of a bellwether. Would you be okay with someone of a different color dating your sister? Mm-hmm. And he says in regards to the Coopers, it, the question never occurred to me, would I be okay with the Coopers dating my sister? Had I ever thought of it, I would have wondered if the Coopers wouldn't have thought they were too good to date my sister, because they probably were. <laughs> you know, and it was really a really valuable observation. But I think having communities that can provide that kind of opportunity for people of all colors to thrive and to be who they are and to excel at what they do, that is that is still an inspiring vision, mm-hmm. I think. And something that... You know, we always like to tie this into the church. The church can do that. The church can be that, that kind of place where every family has a chance to be the Coopers. Um, Every family has the chance to not be held back by what's different about them or by their limitations or by their background, but to be respected for who they are and what they can do and what they can offer, which is always greater than we (laughs) than we're immediately aware of. So if every family is valued and given a place to thrive, that's a wonderful vision. Yep. Yeah. I think that whole encounter of going to the South and seeing those things, I mean, first of all, just it made me really sad. You know, some of the language mm-hmm. that he encounters with some of the white people in the South. I mean, it's like it's like a slap across the face when you read some of that yes. stuff. And then it you does. realize Yeah that not a lot has changed in some areas of the country and a lot of areas of the country. We're still dealing with all of this. But I think what I took out of that whole encounter and the the very strong emotions that him going to see the cheerleaders, like I wanted to yell at them myself. Mm. <laughs> um, all of those strong emotions, it's it's an it's an inspiring moment for me to to think about how I can be part of a solution how I can look to places and, and see what I can do to to help us move forward because there are still obviously still things that need to change. Um, and there are probably ways that I can personally be a part of that. And so that was <laughs> the ending of the book was, was my kick in the pants to uh, think about those things again. And of course, there are tons of other social issues that he, he deals with. Some of the ones we talked yeah. about you know, in, in the book club, the fact that everyone's divided over politics and you mostly keep it to yourself, but the few people you talk about it with, you're probably going to be yelling at. Nothing has changed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He talks about migrant workers and immigration and, Mm -hmm. and how he hopes that someday we're not too proud or too lazy or too soft to bend to the earth and pick up the things we eat as a gardener. I have to say amen to that. I really hope that I'm never too good 
to do work that is hard or humble, another quote of his. We talked about planned obsolescence and disposable Mm, culture. The idea that we're consuming massive amounts of resources to make massive amounts of trash with not a whole lot of steps in between, the loss of localism, the fact that mass media has sort of created a flattening of American culture, and you can hear it in the loss of accented English. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one of the most obvious areas. We've got psychiatry, political correctness. I mean, it's just so many of the things that he writes about and observes as happening in 1960 are still things that we're living with today, except thank goodness America has mostly gotten over its obsession with powdered eggs. Because that was a particularly gross moment for me when he's in the middle of Wyoming and he stops at, you know, at a local, local home and says, where can I get, you know, some fresh eggs? This is Wyoming after all. And the guy answered, I don't know, my missus gets powdered. And I thought, oh, powdered eggs. They were created in World War II to basically keep ration diets alive. And (laughs) they're nasty. Anyway, Hmm. so I guess in some, a few small ways, America has gotten better. We now use cartons of prefab eggs, liquid, (laughs) (laughs) not powdered. No. No. All right. We are probably running short on time, but Sarah. Do you want to know what the time is right now? (laughs) No, I don't. Don't tell me. It's book club. We're allowed to go long for book club, right? Oh, my goodness. All right, Sarah, let's dig into it. Okay. So my question after the last couple, this is not nearly as complex, I don't think. So I, (laughs) I chose question number six. Um, because this was a theme throughout the whole book that I absolutely loved, partially because of my love of coffee. Um, so this is when John Steinbeck went traveling in search of America, he set out to meet, connect with, listen to, and learn from as many ordinary, everyday Americans as he could along the way. What can we as Lutheran ladies learn from this approach about how to be open, friendly, and hospitable to strangers, about how to listen deeply and learn empathy about how to accept people at face value while appreciating both our similarities and our differences. Are there limits to Steinbeck's approach? If so, how can we as Lutheran ladies empowered by the gospel not only learn from, but perhaps even improve on his technique? And maybe part of this is also because it's literally my day job to like talk to people and learn about them. Like this is what I do all the time. Um, And so it's, it's become one of my favorite things to do to actually learn about people and learn people's stories and have empathy and think about how other people approach situations and learn what other people have been through. And empathy is one of my buzzwords. And I love having coffee with people. So like this is, this is this is totally my jam right here. Uh-huh. But I absolutely loved how in every place that he went, he invited people in. He, did, he, he didn't know these people, but he's like, hey, random person on the side of the road, do you want to come into my camper and have a coffee with me? And maybe I'll even like put some of my hard liqueur in it because why not? <laughs> this is fun. But that approach of just having, and I, I granted he had an agenda because he was writing a book, so he needed to actually learn about people. But also, having he didn't that, want to get cited for parking in a place where he shouldn't have been parking. <laughs> right. That, that happened. <laughs> that part. Uh, <laughs> But just having this mindset of being open to learning other people's stories without necessarily having an agenda, without without coming into conversations, trying to change people's minds, 
but just having this uh, mindset of learning about people, learning where they're coming from in order to build relationships, because most of us know people and we're going to know them for a long time because of, you know, the magical invention of social media. Even if you move away from people, you're still probably going to keep up with them. So, you know, having this intention of of learning about people in order to build relationships, in order to have this longstanding life together with them of being hospitable and not not approaching conversations in order to like jab at them with your own political views, but mm. just to learn about them is is a really beautiful thing. Um, and I think I feel like I say this all the time, but maybe after the last year and a half, too, we've all kind of had this uh, awakening of uh, how much that social connection and and having those connections to people is actually really important for our mental health, too, of knowing that we can talk with people on a deeper level than just like, hey, the weather's great today. How was your day at work? Um, you know, we can have yeah. these these deeper conversations about what we actually are feeling and thinking um, and having those connections is uh, really kind of important, especially in the church when we have new people show up. At church, you know, bringing them into the fold, saying hi, being like, hey, come sit next to me at Bible study because I want to get to know you more and just being open to those conversations. Somebody did mention that being an introvert makes this really hard, and I totally understand that. I I hate small talk. However, you know, just being out and about uh, shopping and stuff, randomly like mentioning to someone that you like their shoes or you like their dress or and this might be like really creeper, but I do it to people at the store. If I see them looking at a product when I'm in a grocery store and I really like it, I'm like, hey, that's a really great thing. You should buy it. I use it all the time. Are you a Midwesterner by any chance? Because that's a Midwestern thing and I miss it so much. Totally like born and raised Midwest. I love complimenting randos. It's my favorite thing. But you're right, Sarah, and actually introversion can give you a leg up in this. If you go into it, into a conversation with the intention of being a story gatherer. Yes. I want to learn your story. Mm -hmm. One, you've automatically got a topic of conversation. I want to know about the person in front of me. There we go. I don't even have to talk that much. Just ask a question and say, "Mm mm-hmm, every once in a while. Right. (laughs) It works. But it also, it helps you to value, I mean, it's human nature to want to look for people who are like us, mm-hmm. find points of commonality and like-mindedness. Mm-hmm. But being a story gatherer also helps you to value the points of distinction, the mm-hmm. different points of view. Because if everyone has the same story, you get bored really fast. Mm-hmm. But when you go story gathering and find a whole lot of different stories, then your life is just so full and rich. Mm-hmm. Um, I also loved the um his mobile liquor cabinet and i'm ashamed to say this out loud because (laughs) i mean why should i take so much delight in him basically that his first stop on his road trip was where he basically bought out a liquor store Mm -hmm. (laughs) he got some of everything essentials you need the essentials you know what it did for him because he was i mean Camp camp cooking was not particularly sophisticated at this point. He was mostly living on canned stew. What it allowed him to do was offer something really special mm-hmm. to guests. Alcohol. It's going to loosen the tongues. Of it people. is. It is. It sure <laughs> is. Want them to tell their stories. <laughs> and that's going to ease that along. Now, I'm not saying that every church potluck should come with an open bar. <laughs> that's expensive 
That is expensive. But I am saying that this principle of being equipped to serve something really nice, the good Mm -hmm. stuff to, you know, the people that you welcome in your life, even if they're perfect strangers. I think this is something that uh, Lutheran women are really good at and we can do even better. Like this is, Mm -hmm. this is a, this is a sweet spot for us ladies. (laughs) This principle of come on in, have a cup of coffee and all right, maybe not a dollop of whiskey, but how about a dollop of whipped cream and a slice of pie on the side? You know that we are ready to give something special to the people that we see. And hopefully, unlike Steinbeck, who was just going for these single serving relationships that he could stuff into his book, we're looking for the kind of relationship that is going to end up with all of us standing around the throne, singing God's praises together for eternity. This is not a one-off deal for us. This is the beginning of something wonderful, or at least we hope it will be. Definitely. Yes. All right. Well, then we should probably close the book on the book. (laughs) Slap. Slam. I left my book over on my nightstand. All right. Close it. Very nice. It's not as nice as yours, though. I'm so oh, jealous of your I old know. one with the magnet. <laughs> I got the vintage one. I almost bought myself a new one, but then I decided to just do the old librarian trick of stuffing Elmer's glue down the binding, and it worked. Yes. So I was very I mean, happy cover, to get one more. The cover uh-huh. of mine is beautiful, and I love it, but I think I like yours better because of the oh, map. Get out. It's okay. I, I do, too. End papers are a dying art. If you can find a book with good end papers, that is really special. Well, mine got narrated by Gary Sinise, who, little known fact, is the only person who actually sounds the way he looks in Hollywood. So, (laughs) I do find it interesting that that you guys, the two of you, uh, did audiobook, and I actually read, I actually read like a real book this time. I'm like audiobook queen, but this was my lunch book, and it was amazing. I'm so proud of you, Sarah. You have changed my life, Rachel. I'm reading books. Oh, gosh, you guys, this is the moment. <laughs> All right, are you, ready? are you ready to read another book? Yep. Yes. Give it to okay. us. Okay, so our next book club is going to take place in the middle of October, mm-hmm. which for every good Lutheran is Reformation season. Yes. Now, I thought briefly about making everyone read like the Book of Concord for book club, oh. but... That's like expert level, and I don't. We'll do that we some other keep time. Our viewership, thank you very much. Yeah, uh huh. <laughs> but I have another angle that we can hmm. work with. All right, and that is there are a number of books that were written actually in within the last hundred years. We'll call them modern Lutheran classics that I feel like every Lutheran should read or should have read, and unfortunately. I have not read them. Not all of them. <laughs> I have read some of them. I have read some of them part way, but have not finished them. I have read some of them not at all. And I feel like this. there, there may be other people out there who are in this boat who hear about a book or an author and think, oh, yeah, I should really have read that. But I haven't. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to put forward three possibilities for our October Reformation. Uh, let's call it... Uh, Modern classics that Rachel should have read, but somehow hasn't all the way yet. Sorry. (laughs) Very long. I love it. And so we've got three contenders, and I'm not going to make you all, I I would like you guys to weigh in on whether you've read them and whether you're interested in them, have heard them or whatever, but we're going to wait and let our Facebook group people make the final call on which of these is going to be our 2021 Reformation read. 
So All sometime right. within the next week, we'll get a poll up there and you'll mm-hmm. get to uh, not only weigh in on these three books, but if there's another book you think there's a good chance that we should have read and haven't yet, feel free to add it to the stack. But I've got three to suggest. One of them is one that I know a couple of you have read, and I've actually read like halfway into it, but I never finished it because I was reading it for a college class and I ran out of time and I I didn't finish it. Um, And this would be the modern Lutheran classic, The Hammer of God by Bo Yerts. Um, The Swedish. You've read it? Okay. For class. Not by choice. Okay. (laughs) Um, It's a novel, sort of, a novel, it's basically three novellas, or is it four novellas, squished together in one novel. The novel is basically about a, a parish in Sweden and the different pastors, different Lutheran pastors who serve there and the various crises and, and uh, internal and external that they face and how they deal with them with solid Lutheran theology. Mm-hmm. I remember starting the book. I remember enjoying it very much. And then I remember the end of the term coming and not finishing it. And I feel like this is a great injustice in life that needs to be corrected at some point. So, Hammer of God. Bree, you've read it. Sarah, have you read it? Nope. No. Nope. I own it, but I haven't read it. Uh-huh. I have two copies. <laughs> Aaron? And I have read it, and I recall enjoying it, although I could not tell you the plot of the story. It has been 20 years, probably, since I read it. Okay, so you're overdue for a reread. Uh-huh. All right, so we'll definitely keep this one on the stack. Okay. Book number two, and I believe this one just came out in a second edition. I have the first edition. And so if we pick this, I will probably read the first. I might spring for the second. Anyway, (laughs) uh, this would be Dr. Jean Edward Veith Jr.'s The Spirituality of the Cross, The Way of the First Evangelicals. I own the first edition of that, too. Also have not read it. I own a lot of books that I haven't read. There's a lot of confession happening here on the Lutheran Ladies Lounge today. That's what it's for. So this one, the first one is fiction. This one is nonfiction. It's also fairly short. So unless the second edition like doubled the size, I feel like this one might be a contender just because it's short. Um, But I love Dr. Veith's work. I think his uh, work on postmodernism is amazing. He writes regularly for the Lutheran Witness, so I got to work with him through that. And I've always found him just a really deeply insightful uh, Lutheran layman who thinks a lot about the world and uh, how Lutheran theology fits into it. So I think this would be a really interesting read. So Sarah, you own it but have not read it. Either of the other of you guys, have you read it? No. All right. This one's new to everybody. And then finally, we have a modern Lutheran classic from... The Reverend Dr. John Kleinig, who was, I think he's retired now, but the head of biblical studies at Australian Lutheran College in Adelaide, who comes over to the United States regularly to give us a good dose of his wonderful biblical theology. And he's a delightful human being in real life, too. I wish I'd met Bo Yertz, but I've met Dr. Veith and Dr. Kleinig, and they're both fantastic. But this book is Grace Upon Grace, Spirituality for Today. And this is a book that my husband has told me to read about a dozen times, <laughs> and I haven't yet. So this is another spirituality title, but Lutheran spirituality, you can't go wrong. And Dr. Kleinig has such a warm and wonderful way of writing about things like this that I, I feel like this would be, even though it's a little longer than Dr. Veith's book, would be a very pleasant journey 
I suspect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Any other uh, interactions with Grace Upon Grace? This a new one? I don't. No. Don't own it. Have not read it. Wow. I know. We I are writing wrongs today, ladies. Yes, we are. <laughs> we, we are doing that. I'll have to um, check my bookshelf. Oh, there's a lot of books I picked up in a CPH warehouse sale, and I don't really remember what I own. <laughs> <laughs> so you may have these. There was a fourth title that I've heard a ton about, and people quote it all the time, and I wanted very much to include it in this. And that was Herman Sasse's The Lonely mm. Way. However, super sorry. <laughs> super hungry. Hungry dog interrupts talk. Okay, I love you too, Tooper. Um, I really wanted to include Herman Sasse's The Lonely Way on this uh, because the quotes I read online are so good. I dug it off my husband's shelf. It's like two volumes uh, and like 300 pages each. So read it on your own if you like, um, but I won't add that to the stack for this time. Um, okay. But anyway, those are my three Lutheran classics, L modern Lutheran classics that I really should have read, but haven't quite managed to yet. And mm -hmm. I would love to hear from each of you ladies on uh, here and in the Facebook group, which one we should actually read for our October Reformation book club read. That's going to be a hard choice. And I have a feeling that list might get really long. <laughs> it might, we'll but see. we're all about discovering new mm. Lutheran gems. And so, at the very I'm least, it'll be, it'll be a nice reference list for when we all want to read the books that are on our shelves that we have not read yet. <laughs> exactly. Whoops. And, you know, a lot of people like to use the book club discussions as a way to source new reads yep. from like mm -hmm. the ones that they have not, you know, that were not picked for actual book club discussion, right. but mentioned. Yeah. So this will be a great, great opportunity and that list, we do have a list of all of the previous books that we've mentioned in the podcast that is in the Lutheran Ladies Lounge Facebook group under the files tab, I'm pretty sure. It's a file in the group. And if you can't yeah. find it, ask mm -hmm. and we'll show you where it is. <laughs> I'll be updating that now that Sarah's mentioned it uh, in the next <laughs> yes. few days. And then Facebook will make it pop up fresh for you. So there you go. There you right. go. It'll be there. I will say for my opinion... I'm currently, I would be leaning towards either the Veith book or the Hammer of God, because I remember really enjoying the Hammer of God, but I don't remember it clear enough. And the Veith one sounds a little, little more manageable lengthwise. Ah. So that's what I'm, I'm inclined towards, but I'm, I'm going to be open to any of these. So I will happily go with whatever the, whatever book wins. I'll read Same. it. Same. Mm -hmm. All right. Can't wait to see. It's going to be a wild ride for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. That's all I got. Oh, my goodness. This was a, this was so fun. I loved the book that we read. It's going to be super great to do a Lutheran modern classic for our next one. So, ladies, join our Facebook group if you're not there already so you can vote on that poll. And so you have a voice in what we read next and to find all of the list of books that are probably going to end up on that list of modern Lutheran classics. <laughs> Join our group on Facebook. Find all of our book club discussions there as well. You can find all of our podcasts at kfuo.org or on your favorite podcasting app or on our KFUO radio app, which you can download on uh, Android or Apple. You are listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Aaron. I'm Charlie's crooked front teeth. 
And I'm John Steinbeck's special cup of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) With special guest, Tooper. That's right. Views and opinions expressed on the Lutheran Ladies' Lounge podcast may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO Radio, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The Lutheran Ladies' Lounge is produced by KFUO Radio and available at kfuo.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Join our community on Facebook in the Lutheran Ladies' Lounge. We're at an hour right now. <sighs> oh, Told you this was a good book. No, you told me this was a good book. So good. All right.